you, choir. All right, glad to be back in the book of Romans, Romans 13, Romans 13, 8 to 14 this morning. We're on that back end of the book of Romans, really looking at the application of the gospel to our lives. How do we live out our faith in response to the gospel? A great example of this, I think, is the book Pilgrim's Progress, one of my favorite books. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, you should. Um, read the modern English version. No sense really working so hard to read the, the old English, unless you're used to reading Shakespeare and that kind of thing. So otherwise, go ahead and read it in the modern English. Um, so if you don't know anything about Pilgrim's Progress, it was written by a man named John Bunyan. Bunyan was a Puritan, uh, not highly educated in the official system, but highly educated personally, um, and a, a great preacher. So much so that perhaps the most learned and erudite Puritan, John Owen said, I would trade all of my books if I could preach like John Bunyan. Well, Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress as a sort of picture of the Christian life, as a journey. Um, It was said that in every American household, they would have at least two books. They would have the Holy Bible, and they would have Pilgrim's Progress. And they would read it devotionally because it describes the life of a Christian. Uh, the main character's name is Christian. He lives in the city of destruction. Right? This, isn't, uh, <laughs> this isn't genius sort of interpretation here. Um, and he has a burden upon his back, the burden of sin and guilt and shame. And he cannot get the burden off his back until he leaves the city of destruction and heads on his way to the celestial city. And then we come to the point, though, in Pilgrim's Progress, where he comes to the cross. And this is how John Bunyan writes about this when he comes to the cross in his journey. So he ran until he came to a place somewhat elevated. Upon that place stood a cross. And below, at the bottom, there was a tomb. I saw in my dream, he writes this allegory as if it's a dream. I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden came loose from his shoulders and fell off his back. It began to tumble and continued to do so until it came to the mouth of the tomb. It then fell into the tomb, and I saw it no more. Then Christian was glad and relieved, and he said with a joyful heart, He has given me rest from my sorrow and life through his death. Then he stood still a while to look and wonder, for he was very surprised that the sight of the cross should ease him of his burden in such a way. He looked, therefore, and looked again, even until the springs in his head sent their waters flowing down his cheeks. Now the neat thing about that is that's page 47, at least of the version that I was quoting from, and the book is 223 pages long, (laughs) which means that the majority of the book takes place after he becomes a Christian and really describes all of the struggles and trials and successes and difficulties and hardships and joys of the Christian life after we've come to know Jesus. Because once we come to know the Lord Jesus, we have a relationship with him, we're awake from our spiritual deadness and sleep, but then we continue to walk with him. That's what Romans 13, 8-14 is getting at. How do we live the Christian life with love and faithfulness? Look with me at Romans 13. Starting at verse 8, it will be up on the screen. Or if you'd like to open your Bible, you're certainly welcome to do that. 
we read this, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading and study and application of his word this morning. Here's where we're going. Live a life of love and faithfulness. First, 8 through 10, live a life of love. Live a life of love. 11 to 12, know the time. Uh, We're told to understand the time that we're in. And then finally, 13 and 14, walk with God. Walk with God. Live a life of love. Know the time. Walk with God. This first section, he begins by saying, owe no one anything. You might say, where did that come from? You may remember those who were here last week especially, uh, that Romans 13, 1-7 talks about our relationship to the governing authorities. And one of the things he says in that section is to pay taxes. <laughs> remember, there was a tax revolt happening uh, because of Nero's oppressive tax sort of taxation. And basically the encouragement is don't take part in it. Don't revolt based on taxes. And so he connects this section to that previous section, owe no one anything. The point is not that you should never incur any debt, uh, but that if you do incur a debt, pay it off and be careful what kind of debt you ever incur. So for you, Dave Ramsey, Financial Peace University, this is a good verse for you right here, right? Owe no one anything except one thing, to love each other. God, as our creator, has created us to love him and to love one another. We owe that to one another. It is our duty and responsibility And it is a debt that we will never repay. We'll spend a lifetime seeking to fulfill a debt, but that debt will never, there'll never be a point in which we say, I think I've loved everybody enough. (laughs) I don't need need to love anyone anymore. The early church father, Origen, said, let your only debt that is unpaid be that of love. A debt which you should always be attempting to discharge in full, but never succeed in discharging. And why is that? Because, as he says, that's the fulfillment of the law. He mentions some commandments. He uh, doesn't mention all of them here, but he doesn't, doesn't even mention them necessarily in order. He says, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment. So just to fill it all in there, right? Any of the other Ten Commandments, any of the other 613 commands of the Old Testament, all of them are fulfilled in the command to love one another. Now, where is Paul getting this crazy idea? Jesus, right? What is the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He who does these has fulfilled the law. Paul's just drawing on what Jesus had taught us. He says it in the negative as well. 
uh, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. If you love your neighbor, you won't steal. You won't commit adultery. You won't murder them. You won't even covet what doesn't belong to you. You'll live a life of love. Now, you might say, uh, well, how come this doesn't work in reverse, Pastor Rick? So what's the point of having all of these laws if really all they boil down to is love one another? Why not just have the command, love one another, and forget all of the other commands? Uh, because love is defined by God. Uh, so we will mess it up badly. If we say, get rid of the Bible, all we need to do is love one another, we don't know how to love one another very well. Right? We think sometimes love means coddling. <laughs> right? Love means permissiveness. Um, one of the things you see nowadays is uh, polyamory. Does not even know what that is? So it's not just boyfriend, girlfriend, it's boyfriend, girlfriend, girlfriend, or girlfriend, boyfriend, boyfriend, or whatever mixture of numbers and so forth. And we say, well, that's love, right? Love just allows anything and everything. No. Love has a definition, and the scriptures define it for us. Love is self-sacrificial. Love is willing to lay down your own life to even die for another. Love is being willing to confront someone who is stuck in sin. Love is willing to commit to people or commit to a relationship, particularly in a marriage, for example, and not allow anyone else into it. Love is being willing to share the good news of the gospel of grace, even when it's uncomfortable. You have to see the whole of the scriptures, which reveals to us what love looks like. My friends, the command here is clear, to live a life of love. That should be the distinctive characteristic of our lives as Christians. When it comes to First Baptist Church, really when it comes to the size, the numerical size of our church, when it comes to the budget or the facilities of our church, those things don't really matter. Are we distinguished by Christian love? Are we known for that? Is that something that the community sees in us? Is that something that we see with one another? I was thinking of trying to think of a good example of Christian love. There are plenty of them, of course. You could go through church history um, and just pick out any number of people. But I wanted to choose one that maybe everyone's not too familiar with. Um, George Mueller. Anyone here ever heard of George Mueller? I know there's some have heard of George Mueller before, I would guess. Mueller lived in the 1800s, 1805 to 1898. He was self-proclaimedly a thief, a liar, and a gambler. By the age of 10... He was stealing money from his father who worked for the government. At the age of 14, his mother lay home dying, and he said he was roving the streets half drunk. At the age of 16, he was in jail for stealing. Until he comes to know Christ. And writes this, God has become my everything. I found everything in him. There is nothing else I wanted. And I stayed with him a happy man, a very happy man, seeking to only accomplish the things of God. What did Mueller do? Spent most of his life in Bristol, England, and pastored the same church for over 66 years, an independent Calvinistic Baptist church. But he's more known for the orphanages that he ran, caring for over 10,000 orphans during his lifetime, establishing 117 schools, which offered Christian education to more than 120,000 children. 
at age 70, he decides to become a missionary. <laughs> at age 70, he becomes an evangelist and a missionary. He travels extensively around the world, visiting 42 countries. And even today, we still see the effects and the fruitfulness, particularly of his care for orphans and those in need. Known for his love should be the mark, the distinguishing mark for us as Christians. In order to really live a life of love, let's look at verses 11 and 12. We need to know the time. We need to know the time. What does he mean by that? Besides this, you know the time, and there's a bunch of references to time in this section, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for your salvation is nearer, nearer in terms of time here, uh, to us now than when we first believed. The night... In reference to the daytime, the nighttime is far gone. The day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. He's talking here about a recognition, as Jesus himself said once again, uh, know how to read the signs of the time. Know where you're at. Right? No longer be asleep. And by asleep, of course, he doesn't mean physically sleeping. He means spiritually. You, Before you knew Jesus, you were sleeping. You were in a coma, essentially, spiritually until God woke you up. And now that you're awake, recognize it's the daytime. It's time to get serious about your faith. The night is gone. The day is at hand. The hour is upon us. Read and understand the time that you're in. Which recognizes also the need for spiritual warfare, as he says at the end here, casting off the works of darkness and putting on the armor of light. We are in a battle spiritually. We're called to be faithful to the Lord, to be spiritually aware of what's around us, and to continue to walk knowing the time. As I said, Jesus himself said that. Know the time. Be wise. Be aware. Right? Uh, Don't be ignorant. Ignorance is not bliss when it comes to spiritual things. I notice how spirituality is described here as a battle. Right? It's not a consumer. I get to pick and choose whatever type of spirituality I like because it makes me feel better. No, it's a battle, and it's a battle to understand the truth of the world that we live in and recognizing carefully where we're in. So just thinking about that, um, where are we? Where are we spiritually right now? Uh, thinking even of our, of our own country right now. Um, one thing I would say is it's a dark time, but that's not unusual. There have been plenty of spiritually dark times throughout history. Even Rome, that he's writing to, had its good days. Uh, when Constantine comes to faith, has a conversion, um, Christianity becomes very open in the Roman Empire. It's a prominent place. Persecution basically comes to an end. In fact, it ends up being a lot of compromise, a lot of money uh, that's associated with bishoprics and cardinals and so forth. That's why you have the desert monks who go out and say, this can't be what Christianity is really like, and they intentionally sort of endorse suffering to show that. Now compare that to the times with Domitian or Caligula or Nero where there's great persecution upon Christians, great suffering. You've heard the stories of being, Christians being fed to the lions and so, and so forth. There are times which civilizations are more or less in opposition to the Lord. It doesn't mean a, a civilization can't be better than another. There are times in which there is a favor. One thing I think we can certainly say here in the United States that the time that was very favorable to Christianity seems to be ebbing, seems to be disappearing. There's a lot of alarming things happening. Right? Have you seen this? Um, 
see the news, see sort of how Christians are being sort of marginalized before Christianity was in the center. Now it's being marginalized. Does that mean that we're coming to the end? I have no idea. <laughs> Nobody does. It just ebbs and flows. Uh, be wise about that. Recognize that. See the time. And make good use of it. Time is fleeting so quickly. What are we doing with it? If, if you were told today by your doctor you have three months left to live, what would you do? How would that change your life? How would you begin to redeem the time? Because the truth of the matter is we don't know whether we have three months left to live or more or less. How would that change how you treat your spouse if you're married, your kids and your grandkids? How would that change your relationship with your local church? My guess is if everybody knew they had three months left to live, this would be a very full room right now, right? You would commit because you know that the end is coming very quickly. How would that change your relationship with your non-believing friends and family? And the urgency to witness, the urgency to share about Christ. You can't force anyone to believe, but to open those conversations and consider. The call to redeem the time. Recognize that it's quickly passing. Don't be ignorant. Don't be blind to the fact that this life is a temporary life. I was looking back at my records, and uh, as most pastors, I think, keep records. I'm 44 now, as you guys probably know. Um, I've done well over 100 funerals. What a reminder, guys. This time is very temporary. Use it well. There should be a balance. My guess is, my, my point is not that you should never watch TV, <laughs> never read a novel, never watch sports, but I think the balance is way off. The amount of time we devote to things like that, which I do, I, same as everybody, right, is way off. We're living as if this world is going to last forever, and it is not. Recognize the limitations of it, redeem the time. Get our eyes on Jesus. Make, recognize the spiritual battle that we're in. And make good use of it. And then this last section, 13 and 14, walk with God. Walk with God. Look what he says there in uh, uh, 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Uh, walk, of course, is not referring to a literal walking. Nothing wrong with literally walking, but that's not what he's talking about. Uh, walking is a common illustration to describe not only the Christian life, but, but how we relate to God. Uh, going all the way back to Genesis, actually. Uh, I love the account of Enoch, even though it's extremely short. Uh, Genesis 5, 23 and 24. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. We won't talk about how why people live so long. That's a whole other subject. Talk to me afterwards if you want. My thoughts on that. Enoch walked with God, and he was not. For God took him. He walked with God for hundreds of years. In the New Testament, this idea of walking with God, the Christian walk, becomes central to describe what it's like to walk with the Lord here. As he describes it, as in the daytime, of course, if you walk at night, you can trip, there's dangers and so forth. We walk with sight. We walk with the armor of light. We walk properly in the daytime. He describes not in orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and sensuality, quarreling, and jealousy. Why that list? Most likely he's talking about three categories of sin. 
Um, the first category refers to probably really substance. Uh, the word for orgies could be revelry, drunken parties, and so forth. Um, so that and drunkenness. The next one refers to sexual sins, sexual immorality, and sensuality. And the last one refers to relational sins. And notice he also kind of goes from, from worse to not as bad. So orgies would typically be worse than drunkenness, I think we could say. Sexual immorality, worse than sensuality. Quarreling, worse than jealousy, which happens in the heart. The point being, it's all sin. <laughs> you don't get a pass because you say, well, I never actually engaged in sexual immorality. It was all done sort of privately. And, or I never you know, joined an orgy, even though I get drunk at night every you know, three, four times a night, a week or so forth. Sin is sin. It covers the whole gamut here from different categories. Also doesn't let us escape and say, well, I don't really struggle with substance abuse, and I don't really have any issues with sexual sin, but on the side you're there gossiping, quarreling, slandering, jealous, and envious of others. He's saying leave that behind. Continue to move forward. As he says in verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, as if Jesus is an article of clothing, a coat that we can wear. This is not a reference to conversion. This is not a reference to believing in Jesus initially. Uh, the context clearly refers to sanctification. We are, and it's an ongoing process of becoming more and more like Jesus, empowered by the very spirit of Jesus who is with us, making no provisions for the flesh. I love that. It's not even don't engage in the flesh. Don't make provisions for the flesh. Uh, it's like the Lord's Prayer, right? The final line of the Lord's Prayer is what? Lead us not into temptation. N- not just help us overcome temptation. Lead us not even into it. I, d- I don't even trust my heart enough to face the temptation. <laughs> my prayer is that I don't even face the temptation at all. Lead me away from it entirely. I've counseled people who have said, you know, I really struggle with, with gambling. It's a real serious issue in my life. Uh, every time I go to this particular bar, I get tempted to go and gamble. My advice was, don't go to that bar. Said, no, no, I can't do that. I can't not go to the bar. Well, you're, you're, you're offering yourself the place of temptation. Remove it from you. Someone who struggles with pornography and put the computer out in the open, don't. No, no, I can't do that. Well, you're making provision for the flesh. You're allowing an area of life so that you can sin. Walk. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ growing. I love this image of walking. Walking is different than sleeping, right? He said, wake up from your spiritual slumber. Walking is different than standing still. Walking assumes movement, growth, change, progress, maturity. You're not the same person you were a year ago. You're not the same person you were five years ago. Hopefully you're growing into the likeness of Christ, putting on Jesus. Also, the walking is not sprinting. Right? I, I can sprint for a good 30 seconds to a minute, and then I'm dead, right? So I can't even walk right now because of this ankle thing, but you get the idea. I miss walking, actually. We're not in it for the sprint. We're in it for the marathon. We're here for the long run. Walking assumes a destination. You don't typically go for a walk unless you're heading somewhere. Where are we moving to? Where are we, what direction are we heading towards? We're heading to the celestial city, growing and maturing. We think about the Christian walk, friends. Recognize that walk, this walk isn't always easy. We face different hardships, trials, and difficulties. Yes, sometimes we get off the path. 
Sometimes we go in the wrong direction. Sometimes we take a really long nap, right? And what does God say? Repent. By the way, don't be afraid of the word repent. Repent's a great word. I am grateful for repentance. Repentance means there is the calling to turn away and by the grace of God change. Recognize your sin. Look to God for grace. Get back up and keep walking. Walk properly as in the daytime. This walk is not meant to be done alone. First of all, you're walking with God. That's the whole point, right? You're not going by yourself. This is not some sort of spiritual journey that you're doing all by all alone. You are walking with him, seeking his leading and direction and comfort and fellowship. And you're walking with each other. That's the point of the local church. Actually, that's been said to be one of the weaknesses of Pilgrim's Progress is there's no real place for the church in the story. We have each other. We depend upon one another. This isn't something you do all by yourself and expect to come out to the end because you're so independent. It's something we are meant to lean upon each other to look for help, to look for strength. Friends, I'm amazed in watching people walk with the Lord over decades. As I mentioned, all those funerals, every Christian funeral is a victory in the end. That's what we're, that's where we're all headed Right? That's what you want, to finish well and go to glory. That's the whole goal of this life. It's not, it's not a sad thing. It's something that we can actually celebrate. She finished the race. He finished the race. He walked with God right to the last day and now goes into the very presence of God and enjoys him. We're called to live a life of love and righteousness as we respond to the gospel. We live a life of love. We know the time. We walk with God. Lately, I've been reading a biography by um, a guy named Reed Trollson on the story of Charlotte White. Some of you guys might say, who is Charlotte White? Unless you've been watching the devotionals, then you're probably tired of hearing about Charlotte White, because I've been talking about it throughout the week. Charlotte White was a member of the Baptist Church of Haverhill, First Baptist Church. She was also, she also has the distinction of being the first female missionary sent out from the United States. And uh, that's kind of careful language. She was unmarried um, and still applied to be appointed as a missionary. Now, many wives of missionaries were sent out, uh, but they themselves were not appointed. That's the way they did it. So if you've heard of Anne Judson and Harriet Newell, of course, they went before Charlotte, but they were not appointed. Only their husbands were appointed. Now, Charlotte applied to be appointed, and it caused a stir. <laughs> but she knew the time. She recognized that this was a potential possibility. And there was a big debate at the, on the home mission board about whether this could happen, and they came to the, in my opinion, very correct decision that a missionary is not necessarily a preacher and ordained or anything like that, and that we absolutely can send Charlotte to the mission field. Not everyone was so crazy about that. Some highly opposed it. Some were malicious about it, making up even lies about her, that she had some secret desire to go to the mission field to meet William Carey's son and marry him, or some, all these different ideas came out, and what was her secret intention behind it? 
when she finally got to the mission field, she did meet the love of her life, Joshua Rowe, had, a few, had some kids with him, and he died before his time. She dealt with numerous trials, of course, on the mission field. She wrote at one point, I have never faced a time in my life in which there were no trials. Eventually, comes back to the United States and is basically unrecognized, unrewarded, and was eventually buried in an unmarked grave, losing all of her biological children before she died. She had two step uh, sons by Joshua who continued the ministry. Her biographer, who I mentioned, Reed Charlson, by the way, I couldn't even put this book down, it was so good. Um, I'm going to have him come, the author, and speak here. It's published last year. More about that later on. Writes this, Charlotte Hayes and Atlee White has been orphaned when she was young, widowed, bereft of her only child, derided at her baptism, exposed to public controversy due to her gender, and accused of underhanded procedure, inconsistency, mixed motives, insufficient qualifications, and weak stamina. Her walk did not go easy. But she lived a life of love, faithfully serving Indiga, India, loving the people there, and laying down her life as a living sacrifice for them. She knew the time, recognized God leading, and asked to go. And she continued to walk with God, facing all of those difficulties, even to the day she died. She wrote this, I feel myself to be a mere instrument in the hand of the master workman. If he use me not, I am nothing. But in his hand, I have performed far beyond my natural strength or abilities. I have been enabled to do all under the sense of the sufficiency of his grace to bring me through. Friends, let us live a life of love, know the time, walk with God. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we are so thankful for the gospel of grace that saves us. Something that we could not in a million years accomplish, something that we cannot uh, uh, contribute to. (laughs) It is a sole work of God in our behalf through Jesus having transformed us, help us to no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Help us to respond, Lord, by living a life of love. Help us to be mindful, spiritually awake, know the time, and help us to walk with God until the day we are with you. We pray this in Jesus' name, our Lord. Amen.